Welcome to History Nachos. History is more than just names and dates. It is the heritage of humanity. Here, we are all about the greatest real stories. So take a scoop and jump on in. For centuries, Cuba was the pride of the Spanish Empire. By the end of the 1800s, the United States had demonstrated that democracy could work. Now the Cubans wanted a free society of their own. They started fighting ferociously for independence. The conflict became so destructive that it turned into a humanitarian crisis. Deep ties with America caused the United States government to intervene. War broke out between Spain and America. The Americans prevailed, and the Cubans now had a republic, if they could keep it. Cuba was on track to become a rising star in the free world. However, later on a group of young radicals had something else in mind. They were led by a charismatic man who made all kinds of big promises. He turned out to be a wolf in sheep's clothing. Welcome to episode 18, Derailing Democracy. The Rise and Fall of Free Cuba They heard the empty promises, and they know the reality. Look at them. Listen to them. Learn the truth. Those false promises. Spread the wealth. Defund the police. Trust a socialist state more than your family and community. Don't sound radical to my ears. They sound familiar. Maximo Alvarez That is part of a speech given by a Cuban immigrant who lived through the Castro takeover. He made it out of Cuba as a young boy, came to America, and became a highly successful businessman. Maximo is old enough to remember Cuba before communism, and he believes the Cuba he was born into is gone. The communist government has suppressed the possibility of a free Cuba in the near future, but the spirit of freedom still lives in many of the Cubans who have escaped to America. Before going any further, please remember to subscribe, comment, like, and share. Also, stick around at the end for bonus content. For those of you who enjoy the music, it is all credited in the description. Cuba has an incredibly rich musical heritage. So all the songs in this episode are from artists who lived in Cuba before the Castro takeover. I would also like to take a moment to thank the Roverosas. They are Cuban immigrants who are like family to me. They also proudly carry on the spirit of free Cuba. Talking to them is what gave me the idea for this episode. In many ways, Cuba's path to independence resembles the United States. A people who love freedom fought a colonial empire for independence. They even had a foreign power intervene. So how did Cuba go from freedom to communism in just 60 years? This episode is all about answering that question. The first step is understanding what came before. The Spanish Empire. During the 1500s, Spain became the first truly global power. At its height, the Spanish Empire had colonies on almost every continent and dominated the high seas. It controlled almost the entire New World. To this day, Spanish remains one of the most widely spoken languages on Earth. However, 
Spain began to decline as its European rivals developed into global empires in their own right. In the early 1800s, Napoleon briefly took over Spain and caused chaos in the homeland. Trouble at home created an opportunity for the colonies to have a shot at independence. Over the next 20 years, Spain lost almost all its colonies in the New World. By the 1830s, it only retained its prized jewels in the Caribbean, Cuba, and Puerto Rico. After losing so many colonies, Spain tightened its grip on Cuba. By the 1860s, taxes were high, Cuba did not have political representation, and the government was corrupt. That sounds a lot like British America leading up to the American Revolution. Just like their American neighbors, in 1868, the Cubans rose up in arms to fight for independence. The rebellion lasted a full decade against the Spanish military. 200,000 people died in the process. Peace was agreed when the Spanish government made some concessions. However, getting the Spanish government to actually keep their promises was like pulling teeth. Many of them never actually happened. The Spanish government then imposed even more taxes and trade restrictions, which dealt a big hit to the Cuban economy. By 1895, former Cuban rebels and expatriates living in America could no longer bear watching their fellow Cubans suffer. They returned to Cuba and launched another war of independence. The rebels fought with advanced guerrilla tactics that proved highly effective. Cuba's large rural areas worked in their favor. Rebels enjoyed popular support, and people in the countryside often helped them. In a matter of months, they controlled most of the island. Spain fired their military commander and brought in General Valeriano Whaler. Whaler was a much more hardcore guy, and he quickly became known as the Butcher. For Whaler, nothing was off limits. This war was about to become truly nasty. General Whaler decided to address the rebel support system by putting hundreds of thousands of people in concentration camps. The conditions were horrendous, and over a hundred thousand people died. It was not exactly a hearts and minds campaign. After a couple of years, even the Spanish government thought Whaler had gone too far. They recalled Whaler and offered home rule to Cuba as a compromise. However, Whaler's actions had deeply poisoned the well. Staying part of Spain was no longer an option for the Cuban people. Besides, they remembered how the last peace agreement turned out. Now it was independence or death. Cubans living in the United States started raising awareness of the situation in hopes of American intervention. The American media loved the idea of a war, so they hyped up the atrocities and moral obligation to get involved. William Randolph Hearst especially pushed for intervention. The American side of this is a whole different story. The critical part is that the Spanish government allowed America to send a battleship down to Cuba to help protect American citizens there. It turned out that having an American presence around actually had a calming effect. The Spanish even asked America to send down another ship when this one was due to leave. In 
Then things took a major turn for the worse on February 15th, 1898. Out of nowhere, the USS Maine blew up in Havana's harbor, which killed a huge portion of its crew. A loosely conducted investigation concluded the cause was a mine. It could have also easily been due to a known design defect with ships similar to the Maine, which is what the Spanish asserted. Subsequent modern investigations tend to favor the design defect theory, and nobody has ever found physical evidence of a mine. No matter what really happened, the press started wildly speculating that Spain had purposely sabotaged the Maine. This was the 1890s equivalent of 9-11, and the news media stirred the American people into a frenzy. Within a few months, America and Spain declared war. The United States military does not mess around when it comes to combat. Spain got an American boot up where the sun doesn't shine. As part of the peace treaty, Spain had to give up Cuba. Instead of making Cuba a colony, America decided to set up a democratic government in its own image. While the Republic of Cuba was getting started up, the United States retained the right to oversee Cuba's foreign policy, economy, and internal affairs. The idea was to allow the United States to intervene for the purpose of preserving Cuban independence. America also kept a strategic harbor that it still uses as a naval base, Guantanamo Bay. Considering the United States had just fought a major war over the fate of Cuba, this was all within reason. Cuba was finally free from Spain and on track to become a democracy. The process began to create a constitution. In the meantime, American troops remained in Cuba to provide stability during the transition. Over the next couple of years, the Americans built tons of roads, bridges, and schools. Havana got a full modern makeover. A horrendous disease called yellow fever was eradicated. Capitalism began to thrive as Cuba and America deepened their existing connection. Cuba became America's golden child. On May 20th, 1902, Cuba's first president was sworn in, Tomas Estrada Palma. He had been a rebel since the early days and ended up leading the revolution. Now it was time to bring Cuba into peace and prosperity. Tomas Estrada Palma actually ran Cuba well. Nobody even opposed him when it came time for re-election. However, the overall election did not go smoothly. Just like the United States, Cuba had two main political parties. The Conservative Party and the Liberal Party. Palma was a conservative and the Conservatives won a majority in the parliamentary elections. After the Liberal Party lost, they called foul and claimed election fraud. The Liberal Party boycotted the election and contested the results for the parliamentary seats. The matter became so heated that an insurrection began, and Palma called in the United States to intervene. Order was restored, but the whole situation became such a controversy that Palma soon resigned. Things were so chaotic that America took direct control for the rest of Palma's second term. In 1908, the elections were redone under American supervision. This time, a Liberal Party leader named José Miguel Gómez won. He transformed the Cuban government into what we now call a banana republic.
systemic corruption, graft, racism, inefficiency, and reckless spending. His successors would continue the same pattern. Cuba's private sector, on the other hand, was a different story. Cuba had been a huge center of sugar production for centuries. By the mid-1800s, one-third of the world's entire sugar supply came from Cuba. Cuba is famous for tobacco and coffee too, but 80% of Cuban exports were sugar products. Cuba made a fortune supplying sugar during World War I. In 1920, the price of sugar dropped and crashed Cuba's economy. Foreign investors took the chance to get into the Cuban sugar business. Pretty soon, much of the sugar industry was owned by foreign interests, especially from America. Economic ties with the United States grew even deeper. The influx of cash further increased Cuba's production capacity, but came at the price of major foreign influence in its most critical industry. In the mid-20s, a Liberal Party guy named Gerardo Machado won the presidency. Under his administration, tourism to Cuba spiked. Prohibition made alcohol illegal in America, but the ban did not apply to Cuba. Machado saw a huge opportunity. He turned Cuba into a vacation destination and party hotspot with plenty of alcohol, which drew tons of tourists. Havana became a combination of Hawaii and Las Vegas. However, Machado was also the kind of guy who would do anything to stay in power. His default reaction was to use force. Assassinating dissidents, bribing the news media, and declaring martial law for crackdowns were all fair game. Machado was bad even by Banana Republic standards. In 1933, the United States decided to step in and remove him. America appointed a successor, but he was quickly overthrown by a military coup. The coup was led by a military man named Fulgencio Batista. America hoped that Batista would change things, or at least not be as bad as Machado. It turned out to be not much of an improvement. Batista preferred manipulation and bribery over brute force, but had no problem with using violence to take out people who crossed him. Batista functionally led Cuba through puppets whenever he was not officially president. The politicians knew Batista could overthrow them at will. After a while, the whole puppet president scheme fell apart. In 1952, Batista officially took over Cuba as a dictator. At this point, the United States government facepalmed and decided to just go with it. They knew Batista was not a good guy, but at least he was someone America could work with. Besides, now Russia had nuclear bombs, and the Cold War took precedence over the state of freedom in Cuba. However, there was a backlash against Batista officially declaring a dictatorship. A group of 160 men even attacked a military barracks in hopes of starting a popular uprising. Most of them were killed, but their leader was arrested and sentenced to 15 years in prison. The leader was a politically active young lawyer named Fidel Castro. 
he had geared up to run for office in 1952, but the elections were canceled after Batista openly became a dictator. Castro decided peaceful methods were no longer an option. Castro spent three years in jail, but was released as part of a political amnesty program. Batista was still in power, so Castro got out of Dodge. Castro and his brother Raul moved to Mexico to plan their next move. While in Mexico, they met a young doctor turned Marxist revolutionary, Che Guevara. Yeah, the guy you see on the t-shirts of edgy college students. Most of them have no idea how brutal Che really was. Compared to Che Guevara, serial killers and school shooters look tame. To give you an idea what Che was like, he once said, and I quote, A revolutionary must become a cold killing machine motivated by pure hate. This guy was one sick puppy. With the help of Raul and Che, Castro created a revolution in exile. They gathered Cuban expatriates to the cause, and planned a violent return to Cuba. They also named the group the 26th of July Movement, after the date of the barracks attack. In 1956, Castro decided it was time to strike. This was not a coordinated invasion like D-Day. The whole movement was only 81 people, so they all just piled into a boat and headed for Cuba. Batista's military discovered them pretty quickly. Everyone was killed or captured except Castro, Raul, Che, and nine others. It was a total disaster that should have ended Castro's revolution right then and there. Instead, the survivors fled into the mountains and began waging a guerrilla war. I absolutely despise Fidel Castro, but still respect his tenacity. Che Guevara originally came along as the team's doctor. As any of you role-playing game fans know, on big raids you need a healer in the group. It quickly became apparent that Che was capable of much more. Che also had smarts, ruthlessness, and weapons training, making him one of Castro's top guys. When it came to suspected traitors and spies within the movement, Castro made Che judge, jury, and executioner. If Che wanted someone dead, he had no problem doing the dirty work himself. Castro simultaneously launched a big propaganda campaign. He promised to reinstate the Constitution, get rid of corruption, bring back personal freedom, and make popular reforms. As a result, Castro got a bunch of media exposure. News reporters even went up into the mountains to interview him. Whenever reporters asked if Castro was a communist, he strongly denied it. As Batista became increasingly unpopular, the Cuban people started viewing Castro as the way to restore freedom and democracy. As word spread that a freedom fighter was challenging Batista, more and more people decided to join Castro's militia. Pretty soon, Castro and his men started taking on the Cuban military. Then the craziest thing happened. Castro started winning, and Batista began to sweat. Batista's army outnumbered Castro by more than 30 to 1, but they were ill-equipped and demoralized. Over the next couple of years, 
Castro gradually took over the island and gained more popular support. The United States government even bought into Castro's hype. In 1958, America imposed an arms embargo on Cuba and left Batista's regime to sink or swim. By the end of 1958, Castro was moving in for the kill. In the pre-dawn hours of New Year's Day 1959, Batista fled Cuba with his family and top officials. Castro had won. As the rebels triumphantly entered Havana, law and order broke down. The streets were filled with massive celebrations, violent riots, and armed mobs hunting down members of the Batista regime. Many businesses were looted and destroyed. Casinos, banks, and foreign airlines got the worst of it. Castro himself started heading for Havana. He had to travel across most of the island, and it became a giant procession. Cheering crowds lined the road for miles. With all the handshaking and stops to engage with the people, it took Castro a full week to reach Havana. However, from the beginning, Castro's rule did not match with his promises. Castro quickly nationalized all industries, confiscated all American property, and enacted radical socialist reforms. He also started publicly condemning the United States. Che was put in charge of the main political prison, where he started systematically executing anyone deemed an enemy of the revolution. Castro then made Che the head of Cuba's financial institutions and critical industries. Barely a year later, Castro secured a trade deal and political alliance with Soviet Russia. America decided to cut its losses and started economically withdrawing from Cuba. In early 1961, the United States broke off all diplomatic relations. After seeing how Castro ruled Cuba, the United States government decided he needed to be taken out. In April 1961, President Kennedy launched the ill-fated Bay of Pigs invasion. A small force of Cuban expatriates was sent to try and retake Cuba. Thanks to a screw-up, Castro got tipped off. Almost all the invaders were killed or captured. Castro used the invasion as an excuse to get more weapons and money from the Russians. In a matter of months, Castro openly declared himself a Marxist. This confirmed what many in the American government had suspected for quite a while. Castro had pulled off a major bait-and-switch. After promising freedom and democracy, he had delivered the exact opposite. Cuba was now officially a communist dictatorship. Cuba had fallen from grace, and America cut ties with its former golden child. The United States government now prohibited almost all trade with Cuba, and largely forbade travel. After the revolution, a mass exodus took place. The culture of free Cuba is still alive, especially in Florida. Parts of Miami have become a new Havana, where Cubans can pursue the American dream. In 1992, America officially passed a law that will lift the embargo as soon as Cuba moves to become a democracy. I believe Cuba will be free again someday. This episode is dedicated to Free Cuba, 
and those who keep its memory alive. The immigrants who left their homeland behind and completely started over. The Cubans who still live there and hope for an end to communism. It is also dedicated to all those who have opposed the Castro regime, the Bay of Pigs invaders and covert operatives who risked everything to attempt overthrowing Castro. And of course, the Cubans who have spoken out against the regime. Many have become political prisoners or been killed. They deserve the utmost respect from all of us for their bravery and will to live free. You have officially made it to the bonus material, the guacamole on these history nachos. Stick around to hear about the aftermath, modern relevance, or anything else we decide to throw in. After Castro took over, things went off the rails pretty quickly. His regime proved to be ruthlessly oppressive and violent. Marxism and the embargo quickly decimated the economy. Cuba has never been the same since. Even now, the communist regime clings to power at the expense of its people. The Cubans have faced massive adversity, but they still have their ancestors' determination to survive. Many seek out what little freedom they can find. For example, some live off the land, while others have learned to fix old machines or fabricate mechanical parts. Under Operation Pedro Pan, the American government and Catholic charities teamed up in an effort to save the next generation. They evacuated more than 14,000 children from Cuba between 1960 and 1962. Maximo Alvarez is one of those children. Musicians who did not flee continued playing for tips. A few even lived long enough to be rediscovered by the outside world. They became a global sensation called Buena Vista Social Club. They performed all over the world, and their music has brought joy to millions. When Cuba finally gets another shot at freedom, the people will probably be ready to embrace it again, like a long-lost friend. Like many Cubans, I hope to live long enough to see that day. Under Castro, Cuba became a client state of Soviet Russia. Just a few years in, the Russians began to bring their nuclear missiles to Cuba. An island just off America's coast was the perfect launch point for a rapid nuclear strike. When America found out, it resulted in a tense standoff now known as the Cuban Missile Crisis. The drama surrounding the Cuban Missile Crisis could be a very full episode on its own. If you want to hear a short version... I go into it briefly during episode 13. When I look back at the Cuban rebels who fought for independence, I cannot help but think of the Boers in South Africa. You can hear more about the Boers in episode 6. Both groups were willing to put their lives on the line for freedom, and waged highly effective guerrilla warfare against European colonial powers. In fact, the Boer War started less than a year after Cuba gained its independence from Spain. Lord Kitchener even used the same strategy as General Whaler to fight the Boers. Just like the Cubans, the Boers refused to cave until they reached an acceptable peace. If you want to get a rough idea what Cuba was like before Castro, 
The Godfather Part 2 has an entire sequence set there. I think the scene during the fall of Havana is particularly good. Just a heads up, the movie definitely deserves its R rating. One of the singers featured in this episode is Celia Cruz, the queen of salsa music. I think her story sums up Cuban culture in a nutshell. Celia grew up in free Cuba. As a young woman, she was pursuing a traditional career as a teacher when she discovered that she had an incredible singing voice. Celia followed her dreams, and during the 1950s she became a huge star in the thriving music scene of Havana. Celia was on tour in Mexico when Castro took over. She and the band decided to make a break for the United States instead of returning home. In 1961, Celia officially became an American citizen. Fidel Castro was so mad that he made an example of Celia by forever banishing her from Cuba. Celia had to start from scratch, but she was in the land of the free. Celia became a star all over again, and her music is still enjoyed throughout the world. If you want more information, there are several great resources. I found a breakdown of all the Cuban Republic's upheaval and a first-hand account of the Batista regime's fall. They will be posted on Parlor with the extended bonus material. There are also archived American news articles of the major events. You can even find footage from interviews of Fidel Castro during the revolution. You know what? I think this episode deserves a proper Cuban send-off. As always, we would love to hear from you. Our contact information and social media sites are in the description. Older episodes are all freely available on YouTube and BitChute. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider making a donation on Patreon or PayPal. It is the digital version of putting change in a singer's tip jar. Any amount is greatly appreciated. Until next time, thanks for listening.